It's time to get inside the Giants huddle. Huddle up, huddle up, huddle up. On Giants.com. Here we go, here we go. And the Giants mobile Get them in there, let's go. Part of the Giants podcast network. Welcome to the newest edition of the Giants huddle podcast. John Schmoke with you, today's guest. Pro football-focused chief revenue officer and data scientist George Shahruri will be with George in just a second. But first, I want to remind folks you can find the Giants Settle Podcast on Giants.com, on the Giants mobile app, and all your favorite podcast platforms. Find us, subscribe, and if you're an Apple podcast and you like what you hear, you can leave a five-star positive review. Let's get to our guest. George, did I nail the name for the second straight year? Yeah, you're improving. You know, year-over-year improvement there. You came in, you had a great rookie season, um, and it's just getting better from there, man. So I I appreciate it. Really well done. I I try to give everyone encouragement. Some of it is a little more, you know, fake than others. I just got to, you know, I feel bad. Some people really try, and it just doesn't come out uh, very well. But um, I'm I'm here for improvement. I'm here to help people, and I want to see you succeed. But you, my man, have continually set the bar. So I'm, I'm happy to be back. While someone, I could tell your skills in, at, at an executive at a high-powered football company are being put to good use of uh, buttering people up, George. Very well done. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't make it this far for nothing, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get to it. Uh, first of all, George, why don't you tell the folks uh, where they can find your stuff? I know you do, you know, everyone over at PFF kind of wears a million different hats. So why don't you just kind of tell folks uh, where they can find the work and, and, and the type of work you guys are doing over there at PFF? Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, that we have a, a ton of great stuff, that, kind of regardless of what you're looking for. I think, um, you know, our, our fantasy team, we've got a lot of new young guys that are just absolutely killing it. Um, so if you're preparing to dominate your fantasy league, uh, you want to head over to BFF. We actually have a little promo right now. You get 40% off, um, some really good stuff. So um, go to PFF.com, check that out. Uh, of course, we're gearing up for the NFL season, the college season. We'll have you covered there. And then some really good podcasts. Obviously, the PFF NFL show with Sam and Steve, the PFF forecast with myself and Eric Eager, um, the two-for-one drafts podcast, which is normally just focused on the draft. But they had Tyron Matthew on their podcast yesterday. It was awesome. And then uh, the PFF fantasy podcast with uh, Ian Hardeth is fantastic. I haven't listened to this many fantasy podcasts in my life. <laughs> I'm on like five straight. And I'm not, I wouldn't do that for no reason. So a um, bunch of good stuff over at, uh, at PFF.com and on social media, wherever you, wherever you happen to fancy it. Well, knock on wood, hopefully we'll have a fantasy football season to participate in. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I don't even want to mention where we are, but at the time of this recording, things change so quickly. But let's just hope everything right. uh, works out. All right, George, let's start here. And I've kind of mentioned this. Um, on the show earlier this year. And by the way, folks, what we'll do for this show is we'll kind of talk about some of the general analytic discoveries PFF has made over the last year, and then at the end we're going to focus on some Daniel Jones stuff. So this is something I've mentioned, George, over the course of the year on one of our shows that I thought was a really interesting story you guys had at uh, PFF.com. The fragility of defense. And I think when you look at defense, you know, people think about stars, but if you think about it logically – the offense will dictate what part of the defense they attack, and that's kind of what you guys found as you've studied how you put together a good defense. Yeah, I feel like almost a broken record because I keep saying this is my favorite article from the past year, and it's not a surprise that um, Eric Eager wrote it uh, because he's just does a fantastic job of pinpointing these really interesting studies and then attacking them, and, and that was exactly kind of the, the genesis of this thought was looking at defenses and saying, okay, people make a really big deal out of 
let's let's take Khalil Mack going to the Chicago Bears because Khalil Mack is an awesome player. In fact, uh, on I think it was Monday or Tuesday, I was talking to, to Mitchell Schwartz, and I said, "Who's the best pass rusher in the NFL?" And he said, "Khalil Mack." Um, but you look at the teams that they're on, and Aaron Donald's another really good example. Uh, T.J. Watt was our highest graded edge uh, rusher last season. Another great example uh, on teams that do not end up um, winning a ton of games. And so, why is that? You know, why is the reason that these incredible defensive players are, are unable to kind of raise um, their team up? And one of the ideas is that singular stars on defense just can't impact a game the way, um, you know, maybe a quarterback or even a receiver can because of what you just said, right? There are so many things that the offense controls and particularly attacking weak links uh, on the defense. So when you think about it, um, you know, kind of across the defense, one of the places that, that really stands out is in coverage because that's where in the passing game the, uh, the offense can absolutely dictate where they attack and generally causes the most damage because in today's NFL, that's the passing game is, is really what wins. And it's, it's really common sense to just think about, okay, if I have four defensive backs on the field or five defensive backs on the field and one of them can't cover a $5 check, then that's where the offense is going to go. I, I mean, you know, how often have we seen Tom Brady pick on the weakest coverage linebacker or the weakest, um, you know, safety and coverage uh, by, by attacking the slot? Um, it, it just happens all the time. And so, uh, what Eric looked at was how the um, basically the skill or ability of different members of the defense um, impacts you know what we'd expect to happen in the game, and it turns out that like your third best corner, I don't want to give away the whole thing. Go read the article, um, but basically that the thing that I always tell people is your third corner is just as important as your first corner. Like if you're, if not more, like if your third corner can't cover anybody, then you're going to get torched because offenses nowadays have a guy or have a way to put that guy in coverage uh, against someone they want to attack. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about building a defense, when you look at the New England Patriots, how have they done it? They have like five different defensive backs, maybe six, that they can throw out there in a situation that they're prepared to cover somebody and cover them well. Uh, they have not spent money on singular defensive stars on the defensive line. Um, and a lot of their, their linebackers that they put in, uh, put in positions are either kind of specialty pass rushers or they're put in coverage for a reason because they can cover. Um, so it, it really sheds a light on how you should build a defense in today's NFL and on why some teams kind of expect these singular defensive stars to really improve their team and then are let down year after year. Now, you guys did find, though, and you know we've talked a lot about already with you guys how coverage is a little bit more important than pass rush in terms of you know predicting success and victory, but you did find that having th- that big-time pass rusher does impact the rest of the defensive line and help the defense rather than having that one big-time sure. corner, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's less there's – less, um, sorry, not less. There are fewer – uh, players on the defensive line and fewer players that are rushing the passer than are covering. So you can have, you know, you can pay a Khalil Mack and he can have a huge impact on your pass rush. The, the, and what you highlighted there is that we generally overrate that, that impact on the game, right? Because if you can't cover, then it, look, quarterbacks can get rid of the ball to an open receiver in less than two and a half seconds. 
So, you know, even if Khalil Mack is continually beating up on your left or right tackle, uh, if you're unable to cover on the backside, it's not going to have the impact that you hope it will. So you're, you're dead on, and it's all about understanding the, the potential payoff. We tend to focus on the impressiveness of something. For example, a running back forcing in this tackle or a defensive lineman. Guys that are big and massive and athletic, like they're impressive, right? So when Khalil Mack whoops a 350-pound right tackle, you know, just right off the bat, we are super impressed by it. But it takes, um, you know, that anti-fragility, right? It takes the whole defense being solid to make that continuously show up on the stat sheet. Did you guys find an impact, though, that having a star on defense can help the players around them, or was that not found? It, it, it can, but it's far less than, say, on the offense. Got it. So, um, and to, to borrow another term, it's like, a force multiplier, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, how much will bringing in a big, you know, a, a new quarterback or a new wide receiver that is much better than the previous one that they're replacing have an impact? Well, on offense, it's going to be way bigger. It's going to multiply your offense a little bit more than it will, or a lot more, I should say, than it will on defense. Because even if I replace, even if my number one corner is bad and I bring in Stephon Gilmore, yeah, that'll that'll have a big improvement, certainly. But it still is really going to depend on who the rest of those guys are out, uh, you know, that are out there. Because when you face a good team, right, and you look at playoff teams, they're going to, going to attack your weakness. And so you have to really build um, that anti-fragile defense. And that takes more than just that one star. Whereas right. on the offensive side, right, if I had that one quarterback, he, can, he might be able to pick on your weakness so much better, so much more effectively, he's so much more accurate. That's going to show up far more frequently. And you mentioned it, on offense, obviously quarterback is one thing, but you did find that uh, having that star receiver can have a bigger all-around impact than having that one singular star in defense? Yeah, think about it this way. If you have that one that star receiver, and I, I go, let me think of a good example here. Maybe look at the Arizona Cardinals. You know, they, had, they did not have a single wide receiver last year that earned a top 75 PFF grade when lined up outside. So you just think about those alpha receivers on the outside. They didn't have, they didn't have one. They didn't have anyone close to even mediocrity in that, in that area. And I think we'll see you bring in DeAndre Hopkins, who all of a sudden is going to just, he's going to be open all the time because he's DeAndre Hopkins, one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. And when you can do that, you force, not only do you force the hand of the defense, Right? They've all of a sudden got to adjust their coverage. Uh, but you give your quarterback a true, a true first read, a true number one option. Um, and, and that all of a sudden helps you dictate the offense in ways that you just simply couldn't before, where you're not really even able to take advantage of defense's weaknesses as you would want to. So, yes, the, the star receiver is um, going to be able to impact the, the offense more than that star corner uh, is going to be for that reason. All right, we, we mentioned a couple of big-time pass rushers like Khalil Mack already and then Aaron Donald. And you look at some guys, and you know some players just get sacks, and other players just seem to get pressures. You know, Leonard Williams is one of those guys, right? He's somebody that's gotten a lot of pressures over the course of his career, can't seem to get sacks. So I know you guys tried to look at this. Is there some type of secret sauce for the guys that can get the sacks and the guys that can just get the pressures, or is it really just a matter of fate? There's always a few guys um... – who stand out? I think a couple that, that one guy that that you mentioned or that you didn't mention that always sticks out to me is Brandon Graham, 
who, you know, continually wins um, and and seems to just not end up getting sacks. Sacks, it turns out, and and Timo Risque wrote a great piece um, on on this that you can go check out, um, where he looks at the different um, factors involved in getting sacks. And it turns out that a lot of getting sacks is being put in a position to get them. In other words, there are situational factors, as simple as down and distance, that really matter in terms of being able to convert pressures into sacks. And that when you're accounting for those different situations, there really isn't a tangible signal uh, that says, hey, getting sacks, converting pressures into sacks is actually the skill. It's really about being able to get pressure. And if you're getting pressure one year, I expect you to get pressure the next year. And if you get pressure one year, I expect you to get sacks the next year. And that the key there is knowing that actually knowing how well someone gets pressure helps you predict their sacks going forward than how many sacks they got one year would predict the number of sacks the next year. So um, I still want to focus on pressures in terms of predicting things going forward. Obviously, sacks tell a lot of the story, right? They tell a lot of the story looking backwards. And so it's still something that's important to look at. And it actually turns out that one of the, the places that I would look before I would look necessarily at the skill of the defensive lineman is what is the quarterback? You know, who's the quarterback back there? Because, it, you know, holding onto the ball for a long time, right, down in distance, which has a huge impact on that, those situational factors really play a large part in whether there's going to be a sack or not on the play. And what the defender can really control where their skill shines is whether they're able to get pressure or not. Well, and it's funny, you've transitioned us perfectly to the next topic I wanted to hit, George. And, uh, you know, when people talk about pressure on quarterbacks, the amount of times they get sacked, fingers always get pointed at the offensive line, right? They go, oh, the offensive line's not good enough, letting people get to the quarterback, you know, not good. But you guys have found that pressure and sack rates have a lot more to do with the quarterback than it has to do with the guys in front of them, right? It's, it shouldn't be too surprising um, to people once you kind of think about it a little bit and maybe think about it from the perspective of an offensive lineman who, by the way, you know, they offensive linemen are, are awesome. Like, they are just fun. They're great people to oh, they're the around. Best. They're the they're, best. They're, they're the best. They're fantastic. And if you're an offensive lineman, you know, people just like – people notice – when you get noticed as an offensive lineman, that's a bad thing, right? Because you get noticed because you get beat and you give up a sack. Your job as an offensive lineman is uh, is really just to, like, go unnoticed, right? If no one calls your name for an entire game, you're probably in, in good shape. That means you haven't done anything bad. Same thing with quarterbacks, my friend. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and so – you know, if you think about it from their perspective, if you go, okay, I'm a, I'm an offensive lineman. If I do my job, I've blocked the blocker for what, two and a half seconds. And at that point in time, you know, depending on the play call, um, I expect the ball to be, to be out. And so what can really impact whether a, a quarterback is taking a sack or getting pressure is how long they're holding onto the ball. And I, I say quarterback, I'm also throwing in a little bit of scheme, right? You know, that part of that is, hey, how, how long developing are your plays going to be? But um, you can do things to mitigate that, like play action, which generally buys you a couple extra tenths of a second. But um, for, for the quarterback, having the ball in their hands is a huge, you know, that is the, the ultimate, you know, kind of decision maker. And so when you hold onto the ball for 
two-tenths of a second longer than your offensive line is trying to block or doing their job in blocking um, for that amount of time, you've all of a sudden incurred a lot more, a lot higher probability of taking on pressure and therefore of taking on a sack. So um, the quarterback really should own a large amount of the pressure rate and a large amount of their sack rate. And we found, Timo found, that um, sack, taking sacks is, from a quarterback's perspective, really something of a skill. And a guy like a Patrick Mahomes, um, who doesn't, you know, he doesn't avoid pressure at a particularly great uh, rate, but he does not take sacks. He took sacks last, last season about 6% less often um, than, than you'd expect, which is mm. uh, ridiculous. Um, whereas a guy like um, uh, maybe a Ryan Tannehill, who had a really high sack rate last year, uh, he, he kind of held on the ball for a little bit. He's not the most elusive guy on the planet. Um, and he took sacks at uh, a rate higher um, than we would have expected, given kind of the situational factors that he had. So taking sacks, interestingly, you know, no one would ever guess this, right? But like sacks are almost more indicative of a quarterback skill than they are um, a, a defensive lineman skill, right? Because we have a way to measure defensive lineman skill with pressures um, that are more indicative of how good they are as a pass rusher for a quarterback. Taking sacks and avoiding sacks is a skill. And I've seen a lot of studies where if a quarterback takes a sack on a drive, you're looking at like an 80 to 90% failure rate. There's, it's very rare for teams to, to score off those sacks. So those are big plays. And, and, and we're going to touch back on, you know, holding the ball a little bit when we get to our Daniel Jones section at the end here. That's a little tease for the Giant fans. We're going to go deep into some of Daniel Jones's stuff. Um, one other thing I want to touch on real quick, George, before we get there, is you guys did a study that I thought was interesting on how quickly – players at different positions that get drafted um, kind of reach their potential and, and find their peak performance. And from what I could tell, most guys, the jump comes in year two, but there were a couple exceptions to that rule on the offensive line and edge rusher. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things you talked about earlier with you know the stability at different positions and, and also looking at where you're going to get, um, you know, in drafting, where am I going to get that peak performance? And if I'm going to get peak performance from an offensive lineman and a pass rusher deep, you know, deeper into their career, maybe year four, year five, and then that's going to continue for a little bit longer into their career, that should change the calculus a little bit on, on how you draft. And, um, you know, offensive linemen, I think, are a really good example. It's obviously a very hard position to play. Um, oftentimes guys come in and they're, you know, they're moved. Sometimes they're moved, you know, from tackle to guard or, you know, switch sides or whatever it is. Um, and so there's certainly a learning curve there. And there's also kind of a, you know, um, uh, athletic maturation, right, for, you know, those big players having to play against guys that are just, they've had that training. They are uh, absolute beasts. And so you see kind of a little bit of a delay there, whereas, you look at like a running back, for example, where running backs can come in and and almost dominate right from the from the jump. Um, and so, learning about how positions mature and how deep into their career you can expect them uh, to play it near their peak really help. You know, you think about team building and when you're watching the draft, kind of frame you know how you might expect some of these prospects to develop over time. And I want to get to quarterback here because that's obviously significant to Giant fans. And by the way, so the message there from George for Giant fans, don't panic if Will Hernandez hasn't taken a big jump yet, only two years in. 
<laughs> Same thing for Lorenzo Carter. You know, there is some time for O'Shane Zimenez. Just played one year. So patience is required at those specific positions. Quarterback, though, George, and people will be watching Daniel Jones very closely in year two. That's where the jump seems to happen for most quarterbacks, right, in their second season. And does the fact that they've changed schemes and offensive coordinators, does that change the formula a little bit since Jones is almost starting from scratch again? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the the scheme thing is, is very interesting. Um, the quarterback position is one where, you know, whenever someone says, hey, this guy should sit on the bench and learn for a year, I, I push back on that because it's like, no, it's a valuable year you know, of, of understanding. And if you're drafting a guy high, um, you want them out there. You know, you're, you're drafting them high for a reason. And that's, you know, that's exactly what you find is, hey, we can see these jumps happen. Um, you know, we can see them reach, you know, their close to peak performance within their rookie contract. So don't delay that uh, because you want to find out, right? You do not want to be the team that is sitting there going, ah, I'm not sure whether we want to extend this guy or not because we haven't seen enough. And so, you know, I think it was it was good of the of the Giants, and it's it's a good thing for Giants fans in general that they saw good chunk of Daniel Jones last year. Now, the changing of offensive scheme is going to be interesting because, and I'd be curious, you know, your thoughts here. Certainly, do you view it as a, an an upgrade necessarily in scheme? Because I, I, you know, depending on who you talk to, you'll hear people go, you know, man, I really wish they had gone with you know, someone a little younger, a little more innovative. Um, there, there's not a lot of love out there for what the Cowboys have done over the past few years. So um, that is a really interesting, you know, concept to think about. It's you're switching coordinator and you're switching in a time where you probably haven't had as much of a runway to prepare, right? You know, mm -hmm. who knows what, what people have been able to do during the quarantine. You know, obviously everyone's situation is a little bit different, but you would think that even if you're really progressive and finding ways to, to learn this stuff, that you're going to be a little bit behind where you'd normally be. So, you know, I wouldn't want to use it as an excuse, um, you know, going into next year saying, oh, well, look, it was his first year in this scheme. Um, but I might give it a little more runway going into the season. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be judging based on weeks, you know, one, two and three. I'd give it a little bit of time, see how that goes. But that's part of the process, too, is being able to learn and quickly digest and, and quickly execute uh, uh, the offense, right? So that's, I think, one of the reasons we do see that jump happen is that, right, you have that year under your belt. You're used to, you know, some of the, the intricacies of the NFL game that are different from the college game. And at that point, you have that confidence to just really actually play the game of football instead of worrying about the kind of little things on the periphery. You know, it's funny, George, I've mentioned that to, to fans on our shows that, you know, it could be a slow start here for the offense, then throw in the fact that the Giants' first four games this year are against the Steelers, the Bears, the 49ers, and the Rams. All top 10 pass defenses yeah. last year. So that is... That is a challenging start for a quarterback with no offseason, and depending on how this goes, maybe two weeks of padded practices before the teams play their first regular season game. So, yeah, interesting. Um, sticking at quarterback, and we'll get to Jones specifically in a moment. I thought Sam Monson did a really interesting article, and you guys have talked a lot about how, you know, the running game is helpful, but, it you know, passing is where you guys are going to win games, score points, gain yards, and be productive. But I thought his little look at how different quarterbacks perform when they have to throw, I think it was more than 40 passes per game. And the list of the guys that did the best when they did, 
was not surprising. And I, I find that interesting where you look at the guys on that list that played best when they threw over 40 passes. They're the guys that you would consider some of the best quarterbacks in the league, the Tom Brady's, the Russell Wilson's, guys like that. Does that tell you that maybe even if running the ball more doesn't necessarily directly with its production help you win, asking less of your quarterback, depending on who your quarterback is, might help your team win games because you're not putting them in positions that might lead to more failures. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned that list. I mean, <laughs> it's it's Patrick Mahomes and then a bunch of savvy veterans. And then, you know, you've got Sean Watson, Russell Wilson in there who are, who are guys that, you know, you just think of as guys that no matter what, they're going to kind of lead you back. And that is that is where I would think about it. What's the score generally in situations where you you're forced to throw, right? That lead to these high, um, these high number, uh, these high attempt games. And if you're losing in a game, the chances are that you are playing a pretty good team, right? And I think that's where this. That's why I am so impressed by this because if you're throwing a lot, you're throwing a lot, you know, to come back or to to stay ahead against another very good offense. That's, that's where the pressure is really on. If you can design an offense where your quarterback can come out and you know just run a couple of plays off a of play action and you score a touchdown, a lot like what we saw, like the Titans were on a roll last year offensively. Yeah. Ryan Tannehill would come out. I mean, he didn't have, he wasn't throwing the ball 40 plus times, but they were so efficient on offense that he didn't have to. They'd get these leads and the other team wasn't, wasn't capable of coming back. And so you're able to, you know, you, you want to ask your quarterback, obviously, to do as little as possible because you don't want to meet that, that point where they can't do something. Whereas guys, you know, the truly elite players, the Patrick Mahomes, the Tom Brady in his primes, the Aaron Rodgers in their primes, the Peyton Manning in their primes, the, the, the limit almost didn't exist, right? The place mm-hmm. where they couldn't perform, that was in a different universe. And so you felt more comfortable, obviously, with them throwing the ball more often. And when they had to, they were going to play better um, than the average quarterback. So, yeah, I mean, it's almost like asking, it's almost like saying if if you go into this and you go, okay, well, look, my quarterback's not going to do well when he has to throw a lot, so we should just start off by running the ball all the time. Like, well, you're, you're putting the cart before the horse there, right? The goal is to be winning the game and have it in hand, and that's always everyone's goal. And whatever you have to do to score points, you should do. Um, what leads to those high number of attempts is the kind of the game script and the score of the game, right. and that is dictated by what you do at the beginning. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess then, because I think one thing you guys do well at PFF is that you try to take old football cliches and kind of you know destroy them and say oh, that really doesn't make any right. sense. But in this case, playing with the lead does matter, and it does really yeah. help your offense operate. No, absolutely. And the, the where people always get mixed up is. The, the causation versus correlation thing, right? So they, they look at a game, they go, okay, we won by 14. Oh, and we, we won the rushing battle. Therefore, winning the rushing battle causes you to win the game. And you want to look at it, you know, it's it, not all points in the game are created equal. How did you build your lead? Right. And if you want to score points, which is how you would build a lead, you want to look at the plays uh, that, are, that are most likely to lead to scoring. And those are passing plays so generally we conflate the two and we think oh just because i ended up running the ball for the entire second half because the the other team couldn't find a way to score you know i had this big lead 
that therefore that's what I need to do starting out every game. And really what you want to do is be as efficient as you possibly can on offense, put up points, as, as many points as you can as early as possible, so that you're not in a situation where it's a close game or you have to come back and win at the end. Um, and, and, you know, as simple as that sounds, it's often hard for us to look at the end result and pull apart the two. Um, the Titans were a great example this year. I mean, in, in building a lot of those leads in the playoffs, um, they had some massive pass plays and some really good performance um, from, you know, Ryan Tannehill and A.J. Brown that led to, you know, that led to points. And then, of course, Derrick Henry was just mauling people, you know, at, you know with the lead. Um, but, you know, it, it's important to understand when those things happen because that matters. All right, final one before we get to Jones specifically. Predictive stats for quarterbacks. This is something that I think is interesting uh, when you try to predict success for a quarterback from year to year, and even from college to the pros when you're trying to figure out, you know, what quarterbacks are going to be good. So what did you guys find is the best way to figure out whether a quarterback was lucky in a year, whether or not he was truly good, and whether or not that's going to continue? What type of numbers should you be looking at? Yeah, this is also kind of counterintuitive for most because of what we see. So if you're watching, you know, the highlights of the game, you're going to see the really impressive plays, right? You might see if you're watching a Chiefs game, Patrick Mahomes running from left to right and then making a spin move and going back to the right and throwing it across the field. And you go, man, that's amazing. Um, and, and it certainly is. But those plays are small sample plays. And they're also, you know, big plays, big positive plays, oftentimes are take a confluence of things going right, right? The receiver has to get open. Um, you can't have a, an offensive lineman completely blow a block, all these things. So you want to look at the pieces that are really repeatable for a quarterback. And the things that tend to be the most repeatable are avoiding negative plays. And so we grade, obviously, every play. And some plays get a negative grade. Some plays get a positive grade. And if you think about negatively graded plays, those are throws where – Look, you should be able to put the ball in the money, but you make a throw that's just uncatchable. The receiver can't possibly catch it. That's a hugely negative thing because you need to give your receiver a chance, right? Um, another uh, example would be holding the ball too long and taking a sack, right? You talked about how negative that is. It's incredibly bad for your team. But those are things that we find to be pretty consistent for quarterbacks. Avoiding negative plays is a quarterback trait. And so if I'm looking at things that predict how good a quarterback will be going forward, I actually want to look at how well they avoid negative plays instead of how well uh, they created positive plays because we've seen positive play rates fluctuate a lot depending on, you know, are your receivers healthy? Did you have a functioning offensive line? You know, there's all these little factors that can come into play, but avoiding negative plays is something that is by, in, uh, by far a, a quarterback trait. And so that's the first place I look. The second thing I look is how does a quarterback perform in a clean pocket? Because not only does that happen more frequently, but it's also something that can be practiced, right? You are practicing the, the reads and the play design, assuming, look, I'm going to be able to get two and a half or 2.7 or 2.8 seconds to throw. And so when you see that happen in a game, that's something that's indicative of what the quarterback has been able to practice and been able to repeat. Um, and so that tends to be uh, far more stable than play under pressure. So those are the two places that I would start off with. 
And surprisingly enough, those are two plays places that we're going to go when we talk about Daniel Jones here. So let's start here, George. I basically watched every snap over the last month. I looked at every advance that you guys have on PFF, sorting through situations and everything like that. And this is the kind of overall conclusion I came to, and then we'll get to some of the specific stuff in a moment. If you And this is to the point you just made. If you watch Daniel Jones' highlight reel, you're like, damn, this guy's an elite quarterback. Like, some of the amazing throws he makes, you're like, wow, that's pretty darn fantastic. But the consistency of it, obviously, is something. And then the negative plays that go along with it. So a lot of his greatest strengths, you know, putting balls in the small spots, you know, playing well in the face of pressure, standing in the pocket, throwing in the face of pressure. These are all things that are positives for a quarterback, but they lead to too many negative plays. So for him... Cutting down on those negative plays has to be the focus, and is it easier for a quarterback to do that earlier in their career? I mean, once you set a baseline, I imagine, it's harder for the quarterback to kind of emerge from that. We've seen that with Jameis Winston, right? But do you think for a younger quarterback with only 12 games under his belt that improving in that area, avoiding those negative plays, is something that Jones can do in year two? Yeah, I, I was, you know, it's, it's timely that we're talking because I – am uh, working on kind of ranking the sophomore quarterbacks going into 2020 for uh, an NFL Network uh, kit. And I was thinking, I was looking at Daniel Jones, and, um, you know, everyone kind of likes to think that we were hating on Daniel Jones um, in the draft process, and and I thought he was overdrafted. um, But I'm in no way looking for the negatives. I was looking for the positives. And you hit the nail on the head in terms of, look, he had too many really bad plays last year. He was 33rd out of 35 quarterbacks in turnover-worthy play rate. And by the way, you could get all of these numbers that, that I'm referencing in our quarterback annual um, with, the, with the PFF Edge subscription. I have to throw that out there. No, of course. I legitimately, I use this thing uh, all the time. It's a great way to prepare for the season. George, by the way, um, I have it printed out sitting on my desk at work. <laughs> I, I do. It's great. There you go. Uh, I, I don't have it printed out in large part because I don't have a printer, but um, <laughs> it is it is one of the many tabs that is almost always open, along with way too many Google Docs and Google Sheets. Um, but uh, but you hit the nail on the head there. So turnover-worthy play rate, think about, um, and this is the way I explain it to people, either a throw that should be intercepted, and sometimes it isn't caught, sometimes it is, but we grade it the same way because we grade the process, not the result or like a really bad fumble. And that's a place where Daniel Jones really struggled, right? He had some really not great fumbles. Um, even think about that, uh, that uh, Tampa Bay game, which everyone, you know, just continued to reference because of how well he played under pressure and, you know, the, the, the kind of heroism in that game that we saw. But, you know, there was a, there was a really bad fumble in that game. Um, and that was a, an issue for, for DJ last year. But turnover-worthy plays are still a very small portion of the overall, you know, body of work that a quarterback has. And when I look at all negatively graded plays that include, you know, less less dire throws, right? Just uncatchable throws that aren't in danger of being intercepted, but were uncatchable. Bad sacks, you know, that look they happen a little more frequently than a fumble will. He actually was fifteenth. Uh, out of 35 quarterbacks in avoiding negatively graded plays. Wow. Okay. So that gives me that gives me some hope there that you know I, I would negatively graded plays as a whole are far more stable than turnover worthy plays. 
Um, now that being said, it's not never a good thing to see, you know, a guy like you mentioned, Jameis Winston, right. Um, who makes a ton of like, what are you doing throws? But I would be more worried if they were reversed. You know, I would be more worried if those two rankings were, were, were flip-flopped because um, we've just seen mathematically that turnover-worthy play rate is something that fluctuates a lot more than just their overall rate of making uh, negative plays. Interesting. And by the way, if you break down those 31 turnover-worthy plays, 10 were fumbles. And he had, by the way, mm-hmm. about four – let me think. I think he had eight and that shows you that sometimes he just got sacked really quick, had some bad luck, got hit as he threw. He had eight fumbles that you guys did not credit to him as turnover-worthy plays. So that's a fair right. amount of fumbles. So that means there was some bad luck involved there, and you can improve ball protection. Um, I think he had nine dropped interceptions, which is, I think is something that kind of gets overlooked a little bit. And you brought yep. up the accuracy there, George. And uh, to your point, in you know you guys track accuracy, and again, you can find all this on, on PFF.com. He was in the top half of the league in avoiding uncatchable passes. But a number where I think he was a little bit too high is passes that you kind of term catchable but inaccurate. So it was on the frame. The receiver can make the play, but maybe you give the defensive player a chance to get the football. Maybe you limit run after the catch. So in terms of precision accuracy, to me at least, that's where you can see Jones get a little bit better. He's good at putting the ball on the receiver. Maybe just be a little bit more precise. Yeah, this was literally a conversation that that Eric and I were having about uh, Daniel Jones because, look, he he was under pressure 42% of his dropbacks. Now, that's not all his offensive line's fault, as we have discussed. His average time to throw was above the league average, about 2.9 seconds from snap to pass, and the league average about 2.7. Two-tenths of a second there, by the way, is a lot. That's a big difference. Yeah. Two-tenths of a second, um, you know, uh, below the average is about the fastest that any quarterback will, will have. And I think it was it's usually Drew Brees. Eli Manning was always up there, actually. Um, he always got rid of the ball quickly for, you know, a variety of different reasons. But um, I think Daniel Jones had a little bit of fearlessness that, that endeared people to him for obvious reasons. Like, that's a cool thing to have as a quarterback, especially, you know, after kind of some of the, the things that Manning went through at the end of his is run in New York. So I understand that. I would say one of the places where I would look to see that that pinpoint accuracy show up is if you're taking the pressure rate down, if you're getting the ball out of the hands quickly, are you able to make more pinpoint throws because you're a little more comfortable, you're getting the ball out more quickly, you're not worried about pressure you know, showing up um, and, and derailing your ability to make a clean throwing motion? So that would be a place that I'd be keenly looking this year. Are we seeing that rate of what we deem accurate passes? So that's basically a throw that's on the quarter, or sorry, on the receiver's frame. It might not be perfectly in stride, but it's not something that I'm, you know, adjusting as a receiver dramatically to, to catch. Um, or is that rate going up? Because as you mentioned, he was in the bottom third of the league um, in making uh, accurate throws, but he did at least avoid the kind of, you know, the ones that you can't live with, which are the uncatchable throws. So it'll be a very interesting season. I mean, you draft Andrew Thomas, a guy that PFF loves, he's our offensive tackle number one in the draft. So you hope, you know, that improves a little bit. I would look definitely to take that time to throw down to try and mitigate the pressure numbers there. Um, and then you have to rely on some receivers. And, you know, if you throw Saquon Barkley in there, you know, I'd put him, I'd have him running way more routes 
and and some of the tight ends, you know, to, to get open because that ultimately is going to decide a lot of things, right? You can only you can only make positive throws if they're there to be had. Is kind of what I always think about, and so they need to be there for Daniel Jones to make them. You know, George, it's funny you said that, and I saw the exact same thing watching all of Jones's plays. And the strength was the weakness, right? Pressure would come. He would just hang in the pocket and throw it. And if you look at it, I, I, I broke it down, time in the pocket with, with no pressure and pressure. When he was pressured, Jones was in the top 10 in the league in terms of average time to throw. So he wasn't like running around, yep. buying time. He looked at the pressure. He goes, I don't care. And he threw the ball. Now, that's going to probably lead to some sacks and fumbles, right? Because he's just sitting there and trying to make a play. But I thought the interesting thing that I looked at, if you look at his average time in the pocket, especially... Um, for straight dropbacks on plays where there were no pressure, I think he was 33 of 35 qualifying quarterbacks in terms of time to throw. So, and, and if you look at his overall stats on plays where he gets rid of the ball quicker, he plays better. So I think, to me, even though he played better versus pressure relative to the rest of the league than he did without it, which I think, again, is, is a good sign of high-level play, I, I think if him getting rid of the ball quicker will... A, make him play better, be more accurate, and it'll overall reduce that pressure. So I think one thing with Jones is, you know, and I think this is true for all rookies. Maybe you guys have found this. You look at the average time to throw list on that you guys track, aside from the mm-hmm. mobile quarterbacks, which are always going to have higher numbers there, right, because they're running around, Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, the guys at the bottom of that list are generally young quarterbacks because it takes them a little bit longer to, you know, see what's going on, process. So... For me, a huge thing for Jones this year that'll help every part of his play is making quicker decisions and getting rid of the ball faster because it just impacts everything. It's, I think you hit the nail on the head there. That's one of the reasons that, look, it's a tough, it's a tough place to be as a rookie quarterback, but you can learn quickly. And um, if you don't, that's, that's obviously a bad sign. And if you do, you can see that jump. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, so many young guys come in there. Someone that I think about who, um, I don't think this was, this certainly was not because he couldn't like get rid of the ball more quickly because he couldn't read what was going on was Andrew Luck. But he he was a guy that certainly knew what was going on, but he was fearless. Right. And he just stood there and he took, I mean, it's probably one of the reasons that he's not in the NFL right now. Um, he just was fearless and it, it cost him dearly. And we actually saw with Frank Reich, and I thought it was going to save his career, honestly, was that they were able to do that. They were able to get the the offensive scheme to kind of shift and say, okay, we're going to get some throws out quickly. We're going to get guys open on some quick game stuff. Um, and you're going to deliver the ball accurately, as he did. And he had a great season that year. Um, it's something that the Kansas City Chiefs do a great job of. They, I think only the Packers um, – ran more quick game than the Chiefs did. And we always think about Mahomes on these long developing plays. Patrick Mahomes is amazing on quick throws. You know, he doesn't miss. And so, and he has receivers that are getting open. That obviously is a key component of it. So, um, you know, seeing Daniel Jones process things more quickly, but also be willing to get rid of the ball more quickly, which yeah. is, I think, you know, something that we've seen um, with, with other really great quarterbacks will be important for this season. Yeah, the final thing I want to ask you, George, about Jones is just basic aggressiveness because you can kind of judge aggression of two different ways, right? The amount of time, the number of times you throw down the field is one, and I think Jones could probably 
throw deep a little bit more frequently is to be a little more accurate, especially outside the numbers on those throws. Uh, that's one. But I think the place where he was extremely aggressive, and you guys, I think he was top five in the league, top ten in contested throws and contested catches on passes he threw and I think it's just a simple matter of him being more prudent like it doesn't make sense to try to complete a seven yard pass in between three defenders like <laughs> the benefit just does not outweigh the potential cost there and I think that's something he can figure out I, I agree and to me that is that is a lot of situational components right so one of the reasons that I would have liked to see you know a, some new receiving talent in there is do you feel really confident that you have guys that are going to be able to separate consistently? And if you do, then you should be able to avoid a lot of those, you know, a lot of those situations. But you're so right. It, you know, he is fearless almost to a fault. And, uh, you know, if you can take two to three of those prayers out of the, out of the game plan every, <laughs> every, every single week and instead, you know, say, okay, I'm going to actually deliver, you know, this, uh, this three or five yard slant that, you know, he's going to be open 80% of the time. That's where I'm going to look. I'm not going to wait for this contested jump ball, you know, for another three seconds. Um, I think that can go a really long way. We'll see the accuracy. You know, that would be a place where you find out more about the accuracy, certainly, right? Con throwing up contested um, catches, it's really hard to judge accuracy. And, and we, in a lot of those situations, on those contested situations, right, we're not we're very rarely going to deem something pinpoint accurate because you are just kind of throwing it up, right? Um, and so that'll be a place where we'll learn a lot more about Jones if he starts to make more of those designed read throws. All right, George, final question. This is kind of an overarching theme because you've said you'd like to kind of mm -hmm. mention this and mention and talk to this about people when you do other you know, meetings and such. First down production, we had Warren Sharp on last week. He talked about the importance of first down production. And a lot of fans still think a four-yard run, a five-yard run, oh, second and five, second and six, that's great. That's success. But all the data you guys have compiled says that's not the case and you're better off trying to avoid third downs altogether. Can you kind of just talk about that overarching theme that kind of, I think, informs a lot of the work you guys do? Yeah, uh, people, you you asked this great question uh, was it last year or the year before. It was like, look, if I'm on first and 10, you know, is a four-yard gain really that exciting? Should I be that excited about it? And if you look at your expected number of points you score on first and 10 relative to, you know, second and six, you know, it changes depending on where you are in the field. But by and large, that that's not, that's not a great play for your offense. You're actually losing uh, points. Um, if you do that, and the same is true on second and 10, you do not want to end up in third and five. And a five-yard run is beating expectation, right? You know, yards per carry of five is great. You're excited about that. Um, so thinking about where, you know, where a pass can potentially get you, not only does it have a higher chance of you converting, which avoids the third down altogether, but even if you don't convert, it gives you a chance to have a third and short where – it is, I preach this all the time, third and short, people should run the ball more often because you should be more willing to go for it on fourth and short. So you should be less afraid of failure. But also that's where the expectation of a run, a three-yard run, a four-yard run, actually gets you a first down. And so I think it's something that we can continue to grow in terms of um, thinking about the game of football. Um, it's a place that if uh, coaches become more efficient with it, and I, we saw the Ravens do a really good job of this last year, um, we'll see more exciting games because we'll see, you know, more scoring. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a simple innovation. I think those are always the best, right? Because um, they, they can have a really uh, dramatic impact. 
and they're generally easy for people to understand. So um, I think it's a great way to think about the game. Um, and it's one of those things that I'll continue to preach and some people will yell at me about, but smart people like you and your listeners will, uh, will learn from it and be smarter for it. George, awesome stuff, my friend. Always fun. And by the way, for Giant fans out there, Daniel Jones was a top 10 quarterback on third and four or less last year. So that's where you want to be. There you um, go. Uh, George, great stuff, man. I always have fun doing this with you. Uh, maybe we'll do it again closer to the draft because I had like four or five draft stories that I thought were really interesting. Oh, but, I, but I didn't think this was necessarily the best time to talk draft because who knows what next year's draft's going to be, by the way. It could be in June for all we know, depending on when college football happens. But anyway, awesome time, my friend. Had a great time. Enjoy the rest of your summer. And hopefully we'll be texting back and forth about NFL football in about a month and a half. God willing, man. Always appreciate it. Thanks so much. That's George Shahrui. He's the chief revenue officer and a data analyst for Pro Football Focus. I know I probably eat these things up more than you guys do, but I just think talking about general strategy and what help what helps you win in the NFL is just really, really important. I love it. Um, and I hope you guys learned something. I know I did. Um, and just kind of changes a little bit about the way you think of the game. And what you like about Pro Football Focus, some of their findings might change some of your preconceived notions and, you know, make you think about things that you really thought were true and you believe, which, by the way, is a good thing. Challenging your assumptions is something people should be doing all the time in all walks of life. It's good. But I think what you like is that other times, what their studies show is logical to what you see on the field, right? You know, the, the fact that playing with the lead helps your quarterback should not be a surprise. That That's what we've been taught for a long time, and the data shows that it's true. So hope you guys enjoyed this. I know I did. I thought it was a lot of fun. We thank George for being with us. You can find him again on PFF Forecast, and you can find all the data we talked about today at pff.com. For George, I'm John Schmelk. Again, you can find the Giants Huddle Podcast on all your favorite podcast platforms on the Giants mobile app and at Giants.com slash podcast, where you can find all of our podcast offerings, including Big Blue Kickoff Live, our daily show from 12 to 1, uh, Giants Rewind with Carl Banks, and, of course, the Giants Huddle. For George, I'm Schmelk. We'll see you next time, everybody. Stay safe.